Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter, um, at Joy Keys. You can also check us out on Facebook. That's Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. And we're on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Try to make it easy for you. Uh, you can also reach out to email me. I'm at Saturdays with Joy Keys at hotmail.com. I'd love to hear any comments you have, suggestions, shows you like, people maybe you want to have back on, whatever it is, feel free to email me. Um, I have a wonderful guest this morning, a labor of love, I would say it was. Uh, he, uh, Kent Garrett, and his partner, Gene Ellsworth, wrote a book called The Last Negroes at Harvard. Wonderful book, really interesting because, you know, you don't think about who were the first Negroes at Harvard, you know? Um, so he lays it out. He wasn't the first, but he, there was a large group that, that started so we're going to talk to him now. He's on the line. Good morning, Kent. Hi, good morning. How are you? Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much uh, for writing the book because I think, you know, history is important for us to know and so we don't repeat it, one, but right. also just right. to enlighten us like, oh, okay, that's what happened. You know what I mean? Right, right. exactly. Yeah, yeah. So now tell the audience a little bit about where are you from, Kent? Well, I'm from... Uh, from originally from New York, I mean, all the I grew up in Brooklyn, in uh, New York City, Brooklyn, in the Fort Greene projects, and uh, I now live upstate in upstate New York. But I'm originally a New Yorker, and uh, my parents and folks were all from uh, people from South Carolina. I would go during the summers when I was growing up in uh, New York City. So now, where did this idea of going to Harvard come from? Did you know anything about this? Did your parents tell you? What what happened with that? Not really. I mean, my parents were pretty much, uh, my dad was a subway motorman down in New York City. He drove the train and he uh, had a floor waxing business. And I, I just did pretty well in school. I went to uh, Boys High, which was a school, pretty good school in Brooklyn. And they had good uh counselors and advisors and I was just advised to go to Harvard to, to apply 
and I got in. And actually, during that year, uh, another guy from uh, Boys High got in, one of my classmates, at the same time. So it wasn't that I, you know, was uh, particularly knew very much about Harvard or was that really interested in it, but I knew it was a good school. My parents knew it was a good school, and uh, so I ended up uh, going there. So a cool story is how you drove up there with, like, the whole family. Um, oh, yeah, you know, the, yeah. when you were talking about that, I was, like, thinking, oh, my God, as a, as a teenager, like, everybody's here. Okay, right, don't talk exactly. to too much. <laughs> what were you feeling when you got there um, and, and got out the car and everything? Well, I mean, I was really, you know, I was really nervous. I mean, again, I'm, I'm about, what am I, about 17, 16 years old when, and uh, it was like just landing kind of in, I, I'd not really been out of uh, New York New York City very much. I, as I say, I'd gone to South Carolina, but I mean, it was like kind of landing on the moon. I mean, a whole different culture. Um, I'd never seen buildings as majestic as that, and uh, and... I grew up not really being around whites at all. In other words, I, I can't remember any whites ever coming to our house in Brooklyn or, uh, I mean, I knew white teachers in school and uh, there were some in the Boy Scouts. But, I mean, to be in that environment was uh, pretty nerve-wracking, and I was very nervous on that uh, mm. first day, as I remember. So now your father, you talk about the, the floor waxing business, and I know you talked in there about the behavior that your father had while he was in these people's, in white people's homes. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it has to do with, uh, you know, blacks kind of uh, having to live and exist in sort of two two worlds. And uh, there is a, actually there's a, there's a funny contemporary comedian, a guy named Dion Coles, who talks about, he has a little skit where he talks about how blacks, and again, Negroes at that time, have to kind of manage manage their blackness. And that was in order not to frighten whites, in order not to, you know, in order to get over it, in order to make it in the white world. And basically, that's what he was doing. I mean, I didn't really find that out until, uh, you know, I talked to him 50 years later, my dad 50 years later. And in the sense that when we would go to these uh, flow waxing jobs, it was in a uh, white communities in Long Island, and we would go in and I'd help them, you know, wax their kitchens and all that. And he would go into this sort of jolly, you know, kind of jolly uh, Negro kind of performance mode. I mean, mm. very cheerful and that sort of thing. And I always, it always made me comfortable, uncomfortable. And um, as I say, 50 years later, I finally talked to him about that. And he said that he told me that it was a question of how you needed to behave because you were, you know, going into white people's houses without, you know, without the men there and that that sort of thing. So Mm -hmm. it kind of made sense. But, I mean, it's the dilemma that I think blacks, you know, face today, even at Harvard. I mean, there were 18 of us and... uh, yeah, we were the largest number of blacks at that time ever admitted, which was right. 1959. And again, we were really curiosities, and we had to, you know, you sort of had to manage your blackness at that time or your negroness that time as well. As well, 
I mean, and for us, the way Harvard set up all of the uh, freshmen live together, uh, you know, in, a, in, in around the yard, which is about eight or nine different sort of dormitories, but everybody okay. eats together in the freshman uh, union dining hall. And so we were able to, you know, set up there a, a kind of black table, the first black table. Yeah, I was going to uh, talk to you about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we would all sit together because it was more comfortable. I mean, it was, you know, you could let your, I don't want to say guard, but you could let your, you know, you wouldn't have to worry about your Negroness or yeah. blackness at that Well, you table. know what we call, call it is like code switching, you know. Um, yeah, code right, switching right. or Du Bois with the double consciousness. You're like, okay, I have to be this way here, and then I have to be another right. way here. And, exactly. you know, um, and one of the cool things you talked about in the book, which still happens today, where you said the head nod. Like you see another black person, you may not know them very well, but you just know that, okay, right. that's the other exactly. black person, and you do the little head exactly. nod. And yeah. it made me think about when I was in Italy one time and I saw uh-huh. this writer, I mean, in the middle of Italy, across the ocean, I'm walking down the street with my, my girlfriend and we're eating yeah. a sandwich. And then I see it and I'm like, oh, black people. And we kind of look, but then I'm like, <laughs> oh, I know that black person. You know, so it still happens. Right. It not still happens no matter, you know, right. around the globe. Um, I right, was in right. Madrid at a restaurant, and this lady yeah. was like, hi, um, are you from America? And I was like, yes. And she was like, would you like to have dinner with us? I don't know this woman, <laughs> but she was black. She had her son. Yeah, blah, right, blah. Right. And it was like, yeah. okay, you're cool because you're black. And, you know, hey, yeah, come on, sit right, down. Exactly. <laughs> so exactly. that's, that's really cool. And, you know, I mean, the thing is, like, like we were 18, but the, the whole class was about 1,100 guys. And so we're talking, we're like 1.595%, yeah. you know, I mean, mm. it's really crazy. So now you were there for four years in Harvard? Yeah, for four years. Yeah. And what was your uh, most difficult course? I mean, I kind of know because based on the book, but I want you to tell the audience. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I went there with uh, not really knowing what I wanted to do uh, in terms of uh, what kind of, you know, kind of what I wanted to do as a career or job-wise. And um, I didn't really have much to think about in terms of – I didn't know what was really on the horizon. And my mother and parents were – you know, we knew that uh, successful people were either doctors or lawyers or – that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I didn't really know about artists and filmmakers and that sort of thing. So I ended up being pre-med and uh, wanted to, uh, was going to go to medical school, but uh, I was really, very bad at uh, at chemistry and just kicked my butt. And uh, <laughs> uh, I had a lot of trouble with that. and, and ended, But I ended up going to NYU Medical School after Harvard for about for a year, which I hated, which was really, you know, the wrong thing for me to do. But I mean, I, I when I got to my senior year, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, so I did apply and I got into NYU. But I mean, again, it was part of my sort of mother's, uh, you know, my son the doctor syndrome, which the dream you know, she mm-hmm. was, was kind of the dream, right? Exactly. But so, so you guys, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that, um, so you guys, um, actually, when you were starting the book, you didn't actually get all the quote-unquote black people, and I wanted to, can you tell the story about that uh, and trying to yeah, find well, the people to interview? Yeah, what happened is that I didn't, you know, so we're talking 50, 
you know, 50 some years later after college. And I've been in touch with maybe two or three guys. And one guy, one of my classmates didn't live very, not very far from me. And I've been in touch with him, but I resorted to going to the uh, register. There's a freshman register book that they put out, kind of a yearbook with little uh, photos of black and white photos of all the people in your class. So I went to the book and, you know, I'd, I'd had three or four that I knew. And then I would look at the pictures and, and figure out uh, this guy looked black and maybe I remembered him and that sort of thing. So I came up with a list of uh, 17 and, uh, so I thought that was it. Okay. And again, the project started out as a uh, video project. We, were gonna, we got a grant to do a kind of a trailer that would lead to a larger documentary. I mean, my background mm-hmm. is basically in, uh, you know, TV news, that sort of thing. So uh, we, we thought we had 17. And then there is a, they put out a little newsletter that every two or three months, for our class, the class of uh, 19, Harvard 1963. And in that, we put in a little flyer saying, hey, we're doing this project, and if you have any uh, information or if you have any uh, insights about black members, Negro members of our class, get in mm-hmm. touch with us. And right. some guy got in touch with us saying that, hey, uh, there's more than 17, and you're missing a couple of guys. And I said, holy smokes. I mean, I didn't ask at all of <laughs> you know, when I was 17. And mm-hmm. so he gave me the name of the guy. So I couldn't, didn't know what to do next. You know, so I said, okay, being the intrepid sort of reporter that I was, I said, I just got to call these people up. So he gave me the name of a couple of guys. And I, call, you know, so I resorted to calling. And this is like a very t- difficult phone call. I mean, you call up and, uh, you know, hi, my name is Kent Garrett. I was in the class with you and a uh, mm-hmm. little small talk. And at the end, you ask, well, by the way, are you black? <laughs> and uh, oh, know, I remember we called a, a doctor in San Francisco and the guy, you know, he said no, that he wasn't. Mm-hmm. And I said, thank you. I mean, and I, when I think about it now, I wondered what if he had said maybe or, for, <laughs> or for, what if he said, I'll, I'll get back to you, you know. Right, yeah. right, right. That would have been trouble. So I finally found a uh, trouble at all, right? So I finally found a guy who who was a guy named Jerry Secundi, who's in the book. Who really you could not tell. I mean, you know, I don't know if you call it the black dar or whatever, whatever that instinctual thing is. When you said that in the book, I was cracking up. I said black dar, like gay dar, like yeah, (laughs) yeah, Yeah. right, exactly, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I mean, you know. I, you, you couldn't really tell, but he was black, and I called him up, and he said yes, and he told me his whole story, and that was pretty interesting. You know, colorism is, is Jerry Secundi. Jerry Secundi. Colorism is still an issue. Um, as a matter of fact, I just had um, Justin Driver on recently talking about the schoolhouse gate, and it, which dealt with the Supreme Court and public education. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, you know, he talked about uh, a case where there were these two black men but who could actually almost pass for white, and they did. They ended up going uh-huh. to California and living their lives and passing as white because it was just so much drama, I guess, dealing with being black, quote-unquote, yeah, you know. Yeah. So um, yeah. that happened. Now, some other uh, great stories are um, – uh, we're talking about the, col- the black dar, 
but you also had a gaydar problem. Talk about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, the thing is, though, I mean, I didn't really, you know, we, we, we interviewed uh, a fair number of, uh, you know, white guys in our class to sort of get some perspective, you know, get their thoughts about what they thought about the Negroes or blacks in the class. And, uh, you know, I'd never really thought about the gay situation, but I mean, there had been a gay problem at Harvard, I guess, back in the 20s, 1920s or so, when uh, they they really purged some gay students and faculty uh, when it was, uh, you know, when they were discovered, and it was really pretty bad. So, but when, you know, we had a, when we, we, we were in Mexico um, talking to uh, one of our classmates, we had a classmate, a white guy who had been down in Mexico when we were in school and he had done some research and that. So we happened to meet him a couple of years ago and he was in the class and he, we were having a conversation, Gene and I and this guy in, in a Mexican restaurant and he mentioned that one of the guys had, uh, a guy named Bobby Gibbs had you know been in love with some other guy and I said, holy smokes, I didn't even really know that. Mm-hmm. And I'd already interviewed Bobby, and I knew he'd been, I, you know, you had to get that feeling when somebody's holding something back when they're not right. really tell, You know, so I had that feeling about him, but I didn't quite know what it was. So mm-hmm. I didn't know how to handle it. So I ended up, you know, kind of calling him up and saying, uh, you know, w- w- I think we're going to have to deal with the gay issue in uh in the book, and how do you feel about that? And he was, he said, I feel great about it because, you know, I am gay. Yeah. And so yeah. that was, uh, you know, he spent four years uh, suppressing it or being, you know, not coming out. And none of us knew it. I mean, none of us knew that uh, that was the case. And apparently yeah. there was a number of gay people at Harvard in the class, and uh, the Boston Cambridge community had a pretty thriving uh, gay community, which, you know, I didn't know about. Right. I mean, you're being black is one thing. You're dealing with a, you know, black-white issue, but then you got black-gay male issues. Right, like, right. whoa, like all the stress they were under right. being there, you know, is a whole different right. story. Right, So now you from got, the South, from uh, Atlanta, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can't imagine, Right. <laughs> Um, and, and because you weren't even thinking about it, like like some of the no, things no. that were interesting is like you also did, in terms of your Black history. That's something you talk about in the book. You did not know about a lot of Black history because it just wasn't taught in schools and it wasn't talked about. It wasn't taught in schools, right? Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. So yeah. so that's something that still happens today. I was, you know, I'm telling yeah. you, these things are still happening today. These kids don't know their history, don't know about certain figures, don't know why things yeah. may be in place, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And even today in Philadelphia, like a, years, a couple years back, they were fighting against trying to have an African-American studies course. Like there was a oh, huge, really? up, yes, it was a crazy, huge uproar in the city of Philadelphia. It was like, oh, my God, what are you talking about? I don't no, want my kids no. on that. But, oh, is they going to do that? Then we got to have Irish history. We got to have, you know, Polish history. We got to yeah, have right. people with ballistic. And I was like, oh, my God, this is like current day, you know. Oh, wow. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So now you met a very famous um, activist, Malcolm X. Yeah. Can you talk to yes, us about did. that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, what happened is that we, you know, we were in our junior and senior year 
I mean, a lot of things were going on in the South. I mean, there were a lot of, with, with kids our age and students there, they were getting arrested and, uh, you know, put in jail and uh, getting beat up for uh, just, you know, for the whole, part of the whole civil rights movement. And we really felt that we had to do something. I mean, we were in this kind of bubble uh, at Harvard in the sense that there was really no, no overt racism, you know, no... You know, you weren't in any physical danger, but we felt that just we had to do something. And the fact that there were 18 of us, uh, we were really kind of an, an, an entity. I mean, we were, there were enough of us to have both uh, a group identity as well as an individual racial identity. I mean, before that, uh, before us, Harvard would let in maybe three or four, sometimes none, uh, blacks or Negroes per year, and Negroes would come and just you do your studies and then just graduate and you know get out of town. Whereas with us, we we were a force and we could change things. So we decided. My roommate Jack Butler was a very militant guy from Pittsburgh, and he uh, decided that we would uh, try and do something. And we ended up uh, inviting uh, Malcolm X to come. He, he had first. He had come to a, uh, a Harvard Law School uh, forum debate, and uh, which I didn't, which I didn't uh, get to go to. But then he, we had another friend who was uh, in, an instructor, sort of in, in our house in our, in our dorm, and he knew Malcolm, or knew a cousin of Malcolm, was able to get him to come and uh, come to our. A, a house or a, a dormitory yeah, wow. for, for dinner. And I mean, that was like mind blowing. I mean, that was like, talk about being woke. I mean, that was, uh, I mean, a real charismatic guy. I mean, really, um, you know, no one, you know, we had not heard a black person speaking that way about blacks, about Negroes, about whites. So it really woke us all up. I mean, it was yeah, like yeah. One of the, up close and personal, you know? Yeah, exactly right, right. So so now from that point, um, you talk about in the book, like you said, you didn't go to the first time Malcolm X came to the campus, and um, you also talk about how race wasn't really discussed in your household um, to a great degree. Um, it was just like, let's get along, do what we have to do. Um, but right. you, you were part of starting the first, uh, one of the first African-American uh, student groups. I also read that uh, in the 1920s they had something called the Nile Club. You want to talk about right, the Nile exactly. Club, and then also talk about the um, the current, the one you helped create. Yeah, well, the Nile Club was it was set up. Uh, it involved not only kid, uh, kids from uh, guys and kids from Harvard, but also other schools in the area. You know, Northeastern and DU. You know, and, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't on campus as such. I mean, it was a group of uh, uh, people who just, they wanted to get together to talk about the issues of mm-hmm. race and that sort of thing, but they weren't, weren't sanctioned by the, uh, by the university. And as I say, it involved all blacks, all Negroes in the surrounding area from different colleges. So what we wanted to do was to set up a, an organization, a black student organization that would be for, that would be, uh, we, would, we would only would be only open to uh, hip, 
African and Afro-American uh, members of the uh, student body. And, uh, again, we didn't have – it was just a matter we wanted to organize and we wanted to uh, maybe invite speakers in and, and talk among ourselves. And, you know, there was no radical agenda at the time. I mean, so mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. thought we would – you know, it was a simple thing we would do. I mean, and so when we applied – to, and, and again, there are advantages of being recognized as a Harvard um, organization entity. In other words, you, there was a, a sort of a pot of money that the, these organizations could use to right. invite speakers to college, mm-hmm. to the college, and uh, you know you could you could uh, solicit members at registration, that sort of thing, and you could use Harvard facilities, building facilities, and and dorms and classrooms, which the Nile Club, you know, did not do. So we applied, and they said no, that this was uh, reverse discrimination. And we, it was just astounding that, uh, we were just astounded that they would refuse it. And mm. since that Harvard, Harvard has these things that are called final clubs, they're kind of eating clubs, and uh, where the aristocratic uh, students they kind of live and eat and, and, and you know, have socialize, socialize and all that. Mm-hmm. And uh, they don't, they don't let in, they don't let in uh, Negroes, Jews, uh, whites that come from new money and that sort of thing. So, and they've been, they've been around for hundreds of years. And so we, we just, uh, uh, you know, really hit the ceiling and, and, and were upset about that. Right. And, they they told us that well you know those those clubs exist but they don't put it in their charter that they're exclusive <laughs> you know so yeah, we right. decided that we we just didn't want to be hypocritical hypocritical and and you know lie and and reach to that you know stoop to that level and so that was the big issue and uh, it wasn't resolved until after we had uh, left but I mean the organization still exists today and it's. Uh, you know, we were very happy that we had uh, sort of set that up. I'm surprised that it, uh, you know, that they would they had objected. No, it's interesting. Like I was talking to you before, things are still happening today. And um, a young lady that I know uh, at her company, they were trying to set up um, like an award ceremony that it was an all black mm-hmm. affair and not black tie. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about you know African American affair. And her yeah. um, company, even though they let them have meetings of the black employees. Right. They were like, oh, I don't think we can do the only black people. And really? they were like, wow. but it's for African Americans. And like, this is this year, this year, this happened. Oh, it was wow. a big deal at, at the company, yeah. you know. And it was like, when she told me the story, I was like, what? So you can have your little meetings, but what is the purpose of me? You can't go plan anything. And then they're like right. concerned. And Again, they were going to bring in a speaker, you know, um, all these yeah, things, right, you know, just right. the same type of thing. But this was at yeah. a, a, a company. And so it's still happening. These things are still happening. Now, some sad things did happen, um, you know, while in the writing of the book, um, some of your friends died. But one of the crazy stories that's kind of just stood out, like almost maybe jolt, was the story dealing with the Boston Strangler. Do you, do you mind talking about that real quick? Well, I mean, no, yeah, I don't mind. I mean, in the sense that I, 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 uh, you know, part of the 
issues being young guys at Harvard and at, at college is also, you know, dating and that sort of thing and, and, and finding, uh, you know, women to go out with. And, right. uh, yeah, I've gone to summer school uh, one year. I, between my junior year and senior year, I stayed in, in Cambridge and went to summer school and met, uh, uh, you know, Sophia and... Uh, yeah, we just dated a few times, and it just turned out that 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 she, you know, was killed by the Boston Strangler, and I didn't find this out till, you know, um, the next year, I guess December or so. But uh, crazy, crazy, crazy. Yeah. I, mean, I was like, crazy. wow, what? Out of out of like the yeah. story, and then it came like this little one, so I was like, bing, like what? <laughs> yeah. Wow. So yeah. um, I'm going to be giving away some copies of your book, um, The Last Negroes at Harvard. I thank you, Gene, for uh, writing the book. Thank you so much, you know, for coming on the okay. show today, well, thank and taking you. the time. Um, and okay. I just want to um, say, what well, good luck with the with the rest. Uh, maybe thank you'll you. write another book. <laughs> All right. Thank you. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for listening today. I just got off the phone with Kent Garrett. Um, he wrote The Last Negroes at Harvard, along with um, his partner, Gene Ellsworth. I'm going to be giving away copies of the book, so check me out on Twitter, at Joy Keys. Also, check out Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. And you can check us out on Instagram. That's Saturdays with Joy Keys. Again, giving away copies. Keep your eyes peeled for the contest. I might have a question about something that happened in the interview today. Never know. So just remember, <laughs> I might have to listen to the interview again. Um, next week, we're going to have some wonderful guests, um, Christian Sands on the on the call, and also actress uh, Makia Cox from the show The Rookie. So stay tuned, and I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. To some, a baby's babbling doesn't mean much, but it does, especially if there's no babbling at all. Little to no babbling by 12 months or later is just one of the possible signs of autism in children. Learn more at AutismSpeaks.org. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.